1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and we begin slightly off-topic. Everyone is talking about the firing of veteran CTV News anchor Lisa Laflamme, who says she was blindsided by the move. It's received a lot of very negative reaction with talk of a bias against women, strong women, and even the mode of her departure. Lloyd Robertson, Peter Mansbridge, all had the opportunity to say goodbye to their audience and to leave gracefully. Not Lisa, though. So is that the story? Or is it cost-cutting or the quest for a younger, more diverse audience? Or is it, as we hinted, just that she pushed back against management? Um, And that is also generally more problematic for women.
0: And now, the Recovering Politicians panel.
1: But first up, I'm asking our recovering politicians to consider a politician who doesn't want to recover. Former Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has announced he's running for mayor of Vaughan. What about that? I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Rait, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and Sherry Denovo, former Ontario NDP MPP. Welcome everyone. Thank
0: you. Hi there.
1: So, uh, this seems to be the career path of choice for failed provincial politicians. Andrea Horvath is running for mayor of Hamilton. And don't forget that John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, uh, well, he, uh, was unsuccessful in his stint as the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Uh, Charles, is it that a good career path? <laughs>
2: Well, there are a few politicians who have been in either provincial or federal office that have sought regional and or municipal sites, Uh, certainly Stephen Del Duke and Andrew Horvath most recently in the news, and Stephen's young, he's vibrant, he's got a lot still in him, but he's only done public uh, work, really, in in that sense. He he grew up uh, at Queens Park in his early years, got a law degree, did a little bit of work in a. In the, in the trade union, but always with public uh, affairs um, initiatives. And listen, it's also one of reputation. I mean, someone that is seduced by politics gets notice, and that notice is evident when he loses or wins, or she wins or loses. So he obviously wants to have his reputation intact, and he wants to come out as a winner in these circumstances, and he wants to contribute as best he can. But it also kind of appears that options are limited to some of these individuals when they leave politics, and that uh, could partly be the reason too. Um, but I, I know, I know him. I know him well. I know he's uh, aggressive, not aggressive. He's he's got he, he wants to achieve things, and he certainly uh, has an A side personality. I would say though, the problem with the Ford government and the current provincial government is the whole notion of Highway 413, and uh, and that's going to be an issue.
1: Lisa, um, what do you think of that? I, I think Charles makes an interesting point. You know, there, it used to be that most people going into politics came after being in a pro- profession. And if this is the only work they've done, I guess it can be hard to land. Well, I, look, I, com- I kind of
3: complained about this before when we discussed Andrea Horvath running in Hamilton. And this even proves the point more. The city of Halifax, Toronto, Ottawa, Brampton, London, St. Thomas, Vancouver, maybe Winnipeg, Edmonton. Guess what? They're all former members of parliament or members of provincial parliament who have become the mayors after either stepping down or losing. So this is not a bug anymore. This is a feature, I think, in a political (laughs) career choice. And I don't like it. And I don't like it because you're a partisan, In all of these other entities, you're a partisan in the provincial parliament. You're a partisan in a federal parliament. And I still have the point of view that in Ontario, the municipal leaders are not partisan so that they can serve their constituents who they are closest to than any other level of government. And I just don't like the fact that you're starting to see politics being played on a city versus province versus Federal level, and uh, yeah, that's. I, I think Charles hits the nail on the head. I mean, you're going to build suddenly the opposition to the premier is not only just the opposition in the legislature, but now it's going to be the opposition from a bunch of liberal mayors or a bunch of conservative mayors if the if the leader in Ontario is uh, is NDP or Liberal. So I don't like it. I, I have to say, and that of course takes me out from ever being a mayor of anywhere, but that's okay. I'll well, live with that.
1: But it, it, it's interesting, though, one of the things we've seen during the Ford administration, and these were uh, maybe enemies is too strong a word, but but he got very friendly with uh, former uh, enemies, let's say, from his own party, Patrick Brown and John Tory. Well you got to work with each other. There's no question
3: about it. That's the premier's job. But what I'm saying is that um, it's, it's, I would submit it's probably easier to work with somebody who is not a, an avowed partisan who represented a party in the past. I think you've, you may have a cleaner relationship between, between the, prevent, the province or, and or the, the municipality because there's a bias still in your brain. You still identify the person as a conservative liberal NDP. Uh, like That is not washed away from you after you leave politics. It stays with you for life.
1: Uh, Lisa, let me ask you this. Were you in the banking industry before you went into politics, or is that a new career for you? No,
3: I was not. I took lots of loans when I was a CEO of the Port Authority, but I I was a lawyer. I worked for 12 years at the Port Authority. My last eight were as the CEO and the president of it, and then I went to politics. So I had real-world experience, and I'm used to big deals and big numbers and working with clients.
1: Yeah, um, that uh, it, it is. I've seen politicians who've done nothing but politics, and you know, getting getting a job after can be uh, a challenge. And Sherry DeNovo, um, you uh, became a minister afterwards, but uh, you know, that's a matter of faith. That's not a, a career path that's open to that many people.
4: Well, I was a minister before as oh. well, and also. Oh, a I'm sorry, owner, I didn't had. Quite a history, but um, but to, to Lisa's point about uh, being partisan and not, I mean, I think the reality is if you're a politician, you're a politician, whether you're municipal or uh provincial or federal and you know we've seen that i mean uh, with Doug Ford who was a councillor we've seen it with Michael Ford i mean there's movement in Chris and Wong Tam you know from the from the city to the province and back and i think it's it's i mean wouldn't it be nice if we could be post partisan but i think the reality is that um, partisanship just runs through all of politics no matter what level you're at um, my you know my tact on this is that I think it's a good thing for um, uh, uh, I mean, the negative side of it, of course, is, I think, and Charles referred to this, you know, if you've uh, been in politics for the most productive years of your life, it's very, very difficult, say, if you're a lawyer, to move back into your own practice um, or wherever you are in life to move back to your old profession. So what do you do? Um, uh, And also, of course, there's kind of an addictive side to politics. You know, Um, it's difficult to come down as you, no, with the title of the show, Recovering Politicians. Um, but, I mean, you've also gained an incredible amount of experience. So I say good on you, Stephen, um, for, for moving to run for the mayor and anybody else who does it, because there's a lot of experience there that will go to waste. Um, and I think we have to recognize that experience in politics, like any profession, is a good thing. You don't want somebody brand new to a job. You want somebody who knows how things are done. And uh, even if it's a new sphere, municipal, provincial or federal, um, you've had some experience with both negotiation, uh, working across the aisle, hopefully um, at all levels, and, uh, and and simply, you know, um, running in elections, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is all important. And I don't think we're going to see any change in that anytime soon. And I, I don't think it's a negative
1: Lisa, to your point about partisanship, uh, you mm-hmm. know it was no surprise to anyone that, say, Kristen Wongtam, who moved to uh, Queens Park, well, that that she is an NDP, a left-leaning person. Uh, no surprise that people who are still there, like Stephen Holliday, that that they are conservative. So, um, is the non-partisanship of at the municipal level is it a real thing? Well,
3: it would, it would appear, but there are some that I think more reflect the mushy middle. That is the reality of a lot of voters in Ontario, which is what everyone tries to attract, right? Not everyone is an avowed partisan in our province, and that's why you actually have changes in government. And I think I, I still, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, um, like Sherry says, Tracy says, but look, I truly believe that it is important for people in the municipal sphere specifically, to lead party politics at the door and work together on projects and not have a question of whether or not the leader's happy with what I'm doing. I, I just, I don't like it.
1: Hmm. Charles?
2: Well, Hazel McCallion has supported all parties throughout her time as mayor, and she's one of the most longstanding mayors in the, in the world, for that matter. So she does play... Um, the role of an independent thinker who's fighting Mm -hmm. for her community and will fight to support those respective governments that provide the services and support that she needs. So she'll, she'll sway from party to party. Um, I think this time around, it's even more, um, uh, exciting for those running to become mayor, especially in mid to large cities because of policies being changed by the conservative. Government today to provide strong mayor status to John Tory, or I should say to Toronto and Ottawa, it'll spread to, to, to Vaughan and to Mississauga and to Peel and other areas. That role will be kind of ever more important than it has in the past.
4: We forget, too, Patrick Brown. I, I should have mentioned his name and Vaughan, but there's a conservative who I don't think is going to be answering necessarily to a conservative hierarchy. So I think you can be partisan without being partial um, to Lisa's point. So I think there's yeah. agreement there.
1: Hmm. Okay. Uh, moving right along, um, shocker in uh, my world, the media world, Lisa Laflamme out at CTV, unceremoniously out. um Lisa, do you take that as a kind of uh, a a sign that that women are treated differently? Women are viewed as having a shorter shelf life. Uh, She's in her late 50s, but, you know, male anchors last a lot longer than that.
3: Being a woman in my 50s, not quite late, but 50s for sure, it does run through my mind of Is, am I going to face a bias at some point in time because of my age? And I I do think about that. So I think for folks to jump to that conclusion that that's part of it, the the reasoning here, or that at least is the appearance of it, I think that's, that's a, that's okay. You can draw that conclusion from it. Um, but I would say this is that my big takeaway, quite frankly, is the fact that no job is safe and you can be fired at any time, provided you're given the appropriate amount of compensation. And, you know, when you get to the top, um, there's nowhere else to go, and you just wait for the time when when you are going to be leaving, either under your own steam or someone else makes the decision for you. And it's uh, I'm glad that she's getting out there and talking about it. I think it's interesting for folks, but um, this is the way business is.
1: Lisa, Have we, Hi, I'm here. No, you're here. This is the way business. Absolutely, and. Uh, Bell Media, when it comes to uh, dealing with news, does not have a very good track record. I keep saying they, they literally gutted an entire radio newsroom after taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in wage subsidies. Um, so, um. Yeah, but again, and, you know, to your point about ageism, Lisa, I think it's worse for women, but it is the last acceptable prejudice. And uh, ultimately, it affects all of us. Yeah, I mean,
3: you know, the Supreme Court has reversed that there's no mandatory. Sorry, they have said that there's no mandatory retirement. Um, But as I said, you can always be terminated without cause. You just have to pay the person.
1: Uh, Well, yeah. Uh, Sherry, uh, what do you make of it? Do you see this in terms of uh, a, a negative bias against women? Or, you know, there are people who are saying, well, they're looking for a more diverse, a younger audience.
4: Uh, well, first of all, Libby, your point about Bell Media is really well taken. I think that is uh, that is very questionable. Um, uh, in terms of Lisa Laflam, first of all, let me say that her her video, I watched it, of course, like so many, and I thought it was very elegant and classy. I mean, she wasn't, you know, you know, hurling vindictive uh, comments about her former employees. She was, uh, but she was simply stating um, her situation and the fact that she was blindsided and that she was shocked. Um, I think it is about women. I think it is. Um, uh, shall I use the word, the M word, misogynist? I think it is. I mean, you have how many women? Can make it to 77, like you know Lloyd Robertson did, um, and be an anchor on television. I mean, I, I'd love to name one, um, so there's that. And if it's about diversity and youth. Um, fair enough. Um, we should all be looking at diversity issues, whatever industry or, or occupation we're in. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that the same Bell Media hired young white men um, pretty recently. So, So, I mean, I don't think that's a good reason. I don't think that's the reason here. Um, it probably comes down to some focus group. It probably comes down to something else. Um, but, but the optics, let's face it, the optics are terrible. And, um, and good on her for speaking out as, as, as well as she did. And, um, I, you know, I hope she lands on her, her feet somewhere. But I, and I also hope that this is a, a kind of wake-up call for, for media generally, um, as to how they, they deal with their staff period and certainly their aging female staff.
1: Well, you know, it was during the pandemic, she let her hair go gray, and we were all kind of cheering for that. Uh, And I wonder if if ultimately something like that hastened her demise. Charles, uh, what do you think? I mean, Lisa makes a very good point. Uh, Any of us can be fired anytime. Yeah,
2: both Lisa and Sherry make great points. I I, I, I appreciated her video. I, I thought it was very pointed, mind you. It was very powerful. But the optics on CTV and Bell Media are so bad. The fact that they're not allowing her to provide for a real send-off and to to uh, go before the audience like the others have had in the past doesn't bode well for them. I know Omar Scandini has been criticized for some of his tweets because he immediately went on and thanked her. And, hey, I think I'm gradually part of the job now. So he's getting a bit of pushback for acting too quickly and not allowing her to have the limelight of the day. And the point is...
1: They that may give have her been orchestrated. Line, give her
2: the respect that she deserves after all those years and tremendous impact she's made uh, on our country and in the news. But I got to say, it's, I, 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 for one, I mean, I was part of the women on boards issues. I've really, I've been a big champion for diversity in boards and in business. We operate much better when we have uh, different points of view. But it annoys me when I hear all the middle aged white guys complaining that they too. Are being pushed out of the system, so it seems everyone's upset. when When we're getting when we're getting older, we're still productive. We don't necessarily want to leave, and and she certainly doesn't. and She deserves better.
1: Well, I, I'm sure she will land somewhere good. Oh, I'm sure she's got a good package to boot. Well, yeah, but you know, uh, there there aren't that many equivalent jobs, and I don't want to keep. Uh, uh, tooting the horn of uh, essentially a, a competitor, though we don't have uh, that kind of a big news operation. Uh, so it, it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's also, I think, about corporatization of news. Uh, in a lot of places, you don't have news people running news departments and making these decisions. And I think she pushed back.
2: You know, we all have, there, no, no job is safe. Um, all of, you know, all of us that are on this panel have had to change jobs at points of our career. It's just the way it is. And, uh, some of them handle it better than others. And, and um, I, I just think if it was anybody else, it wouldn't be noticed. But because it's Lisa, it's being noticed even more, more, more effectively. But I'm certain that she's going to be fine and she's doing well. Unlike some, so many others that are well below her status who suffer so much more.
1: Well, uh, exactly, and it's it's interesting, this whole uh, th- this whole uh, session today has been about job change and generally uh, forced job change, uh, as per Stephen Del Duca. I mean, he had the chance to step down of his own volition, but, you know, he was trounced.
3: Yeah. Maybe With- Stephen Del Duca can go on to national news <laughs> and we'll have a full
1: circle. Okay, well, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. Um so we've talked about strong mayor. Uh let's just talk a little bit before we go about what is happening in healthcare and a whole huge can of worms opened last week when uh, th- the new health minister, Sylvia Jones, sort of opened the door, said she's not ruling out more privatization, uh, and then kind of walked it back. Uh, Lisa, was that damaging for the government? I don't know. I think it sparked a conversation
3: for sure about what did that mean. Um, it may, What it may have done, though, is may have... May have taken control of the issue away from them so that even if they do come up with something that's innovative, that they're going to be accused of trying to get rid of our, our, our healthcare system. So that could be the problem, um, for them from a political point of view. But it's, um, we can't sit here straight faced and say that the system is working because we all know it isn't. And, something has to happen, and they, they have to figure out their path forward, and, and this government will be judged by that. They, this government specifically, with a mandate,
1: will be judged
3: in four years as to how they handled the health care.
1: Well, absolutely, and, and to your point, I think that already, I mean, I uh, sort of regret that everything seems to be so polarised. That whatever they do uh, there are people on the other side saying you're getting rid of Medicare, you're you're privatizing uh, sort of no matter what and but then on the other hand they're they're doing things which are harming our access to health care mm-hmm.
2: uh, Um you know we've been critical of all governments, mine included, in terms of health care, how to make it more effective. We recognize that money is never enough, and making changes has to happen in order to be uh, more effective. Sherry DeNova was there when we brought forward um, you know, work to stop some of the, and crack down on those most vulnerable through agencies. And in this case, an agency is actually there for the nurses. The nurses are actually leaving, going for more money in the private sector, and then being... Uh, contracted back, it's 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 dysfunctional. It's expensive. Permanent employees going to temp agencies just doesn't make sense to me. And some will argue that's the beginning of privatization, but it's not sustainable. And in terms of other ways of delivering healthcare in our system, we have to be more innovative. I don't know. Um, And I don't ever believe we'll do away with our universality. We'll always protect that. But I know this government is looking at opportunities to try to find a better way to deliver service. And P3s is a private public system that's existing to provide more buildings and construction of of hospitals. You know, the way they move forward in terms of contracting for that work can be disruptive. And it's certainly going to be very disruptive for some of the unions that are there to protect their nurses. I don't know how this is going to play out. All I know is something has to improve. Build 124 is really creating a stink there for uh, some of the, the nurses. Certainly they're worn down, they're burnt out, there's ill will. Um, I agree with Lisa. This is going to be very reflective of the government in the next three to four years. And it's not just going to be in nursing. It's going to be in other sectors of the economy as well.
1: And Lisa, to 124, here's something that I don't understand. Maybe uh, y- you have some insight into this. To me, uh, there's no way they're going to get away with 1% increase for nurses. So why not say, okay, we're abolishing this and make the nurses feel like they're heard and just get that off the table as a topic? I, I don't understand.
3: And I'm sure there's a, there's members of the caucus who say exactly the same thing to to leadership in the government right now. Um And doesn't it feel, though, like this is coming to a head, that there is going to be a decision on Bill 124? I have no insight into this whatsoever. I'm outside as much as anybody else is in terms of watching what's going on. But it just seems to me that the pressure seems to be unrelenting when it comes to this. And as they go into negotiations, maybe that is something that they give on before they get to the table.
1: Okay. Uh, again, I don't get it. I just, I just think, you know, you you could change the channel on the conversation by doing mm-hmm. that, and it's, it's not a real thing. It's not a possibility in in uh, in our situation now. Uh, Sherry DeNovo. I mean, uh, what did you think when you heard Sylvia Jones say nothing is off the table? Including privatization.
4: Well, I think uh, I was shocked, along with most of Ontario, who did not vote for privatization. But make no mistake, um, it's happening as we speak. I had a congregant just today, in fact who was told that she could pay $6,000 for eye surgery and get it now, or she could wait in line and maybe get it in a couple of months. Um So it's happening as we speak. And, you know, this is a government who's, who is spending $230 billion on highways, much of it over green space. Um, I think they can spare some money for health care. So I absolutely agree with Charles and Lisa about Bill 124. It needs to go, um, and the privatization, you know, of, of having nurses working through agencies, where we as taxpayers are paying two to three times as much as we would if they just were on salary, is is really kind of emulating the worst of uh, of the American system. Which, by the way, reminding listeners, is the most expensive, uh, one of the most expensive in the in in all of the developed world, and one of the worst. Um, so. I I mean, this, this is a choice that they're making, and I think uh, we'll come back to bite them um, in, in, in the short while, maybe not necessarily in the long while, we'll see, but, um, but certainly one thing that Canadians hold dear is our Medicare system. We love to use our OHIP, and, you know, Americans who come to Canada love it too, so um, they're really going up against one of the aspects that makes us Canadians, and I don't think it's going to wash.
1: Oh absolutely not. Now in terms of the agency nurses and uh we'll have to end on this note. Hospitals don't have a choice because they have labor shortages and for all that we're told that nurses make more there, well they don't get benefits, they don't get vacation. So I'm not sure they they come out further ahead. They do have more control over their schedules, and they're burnt out. So um, at this point, I mean, it's a stopgap, but it's a stopgap that is uh, really doing a lot of harm, Charles.
2: I agree. It is not sustainable. And uh, they uh, they may feel like they're being paid more per hour, but they're not getting the benefits long term. And they're losing also just the whole camaraderie of being part of a company and being part of an organization. But morale is so bad, they don't want to be part of that. And uh, and they're frustrated, and and we're all uh, be will be worse for it. But um, I'm I'm agreeing with with Cherry and Lisa on this. We we have to find a better way to, to proceed with uh, with negotiating with our nurses, and frankly, with all the other staffs. Going to happen to the teachers as well. Many will complain that they're already getting paid well. But if you look at the young nurses that are just starting off, there's not a lot of money there for them. And yet, we'll give away a billion dollars in license renewals. We'll give a billion and a half away with uh, the carbon tax that we gave uh, back to, uh, to the feds in respect to not doing a uh, carbon uh, cap and trade system. We'll, we'll, there's some mis- misuse of funding that we could do better. And health care is essential. It's the primary reason government of the province of Ontario exists, between health care and education, and economic renewal. So this is a big part of what they do
1: going forward. Okay, Lisa Right, last 20 seconds to you.
3: I think a good statistic to look at when we talk about nursing is the enrollment in nursing programs in Ontario. Is it up? Is it down? And that will give you a key indication as to what people think about the profession. And if we're still attracting people, we're lucky. And now it's about retaining them in the positions and the government needs to work on it.
1: Okay. Thank you all, and we will talk again soon. Thanks, Lisa Wright, Thank Charles Souza, and Sherry DeNovo. Bye-bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Okay. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, a very worrisome thing is polio making a comeback. We'll talk about that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Is polio making a comeback? This dread disease was completely eradicated thanks to vaccination. But now the Public Health Agency of Canada will will begin testing wastewater for polio because of signs that it may be re-emerging. New York authorities reported one case of the virus in Rockland County, and the Centers for Disease Control confirmed the presence of the polio virus in 11 wastewater samples. There have been warnings that we are falling behind in herd immunity. So what do you think? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Samir el a professor of infectious diseases and microbiology at Western University. Hi, hi, doctor Alsayed. Thanks hi, for Libby. joining us. So hi. how worrisome is this?
5: Well, certainly our experience with COVID and monkeypox has taught us that we shouldn't take any of these emerging infectious diseases for granted. I mean, in the early part of the twentieth century. I mean polio was 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 feared. There were a lot of cases of polio until more and more people became vaccinated. And as time went on, once we did establish herd immunity in many parts of the world, polio was eradicated in, in various regions. But certainly the concern of polio re-emerging in, in New York, also as well in the United Kingdom, at least in the wastewater, and also as well there was a, a case in Israel as well, and there are a few countries that have polio occurring um, on a routine basis, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, uh, and so none of us live in isolation. And so these these diseases, like COVID, monkeypox, and now polio, are things not to take for granted. And certainly, if we don't look for it, we won't know. Uh, what to do <laughs> once it hits us, because there there is no treatment for polio, it's supportive. So we really need to be proactive to look for it and to encourage vaccination.
1: So is this happening because people are unvaccinated? I know that in New York, there are some communities that are anti-vax. Um, is, is that what's going on?
5: Yeah, certainly vaccination is very effective. Vaccination is about 95% effective. I mean, it's Part of the routine childhood vaccination series, children would get vaccines all the way up to age four to six, uh, several vaccines. And then some adults would get the vaccine if they're in a high risk situation, if they're traveling to a country that has a high burden of polio, or they're working in a lab that works with polio virus, or they're a healthcare worker who's managing a polio case, which is not common now. Um, but certainly, if you're unvaccinated, you would be at risk for this virus, or if you're for some rare reason your vaccine didn't take, you you might be at risk for getting this virus. Here's the issue with polio, and that is in the wealthier countries, the polio vaccine that's administered is the inactivated polio vaccine, and that is very effective, and it cannot cause polio. So you're not injecting any live virus into the body with that vaccine. In the low- to middle-income countries, uh, polio vaccine is administered as a kind of a modified form of a live virus in an oral solution. It's cheaper and it's easier to administer. And although the vaccine is very effective when given in that mode of delivery, in rare cases, the vaccine can actually cause polio itself because the virus is shed in the feces, it goes in the wastewater, it could be transmitted to another individual. If there's poor um, fecal, um, um, uh, if there's a bad oral hygiene, or sorry, hand hygiene, there might be fecal oral transmission of the, of the virus to another individual. Or if there's a contaminated surface, let's say a child plays with something, they can put it in their mouth. If they're unvaccinated, they can get the virus. So for people who are vaccinated and who are not immunosuppressed, Getting the oral vaccine, it's it's um, not an issue for them in terms of being at risk for polio. They likely won't be, but for people who are unvaccinated and are those who are immunosuppressed, there are cases of polio that occur indirectly from the live vaccine through wastewater through um, you know, transmission from another individual.
1: But but would... what what I'm asking here are are people. And, you know, are they anti-vax? Are they not getting the vaccination? I, I gather that it's, it's mandatory for school.
5: That's correct. In, for instance, in Ontario, and I think in most jurisdictions, or if not all jurisdictions in, in Canada, polio vaccine is required, just like tetanus is, measles is, etc. So I'm not sure. I mean, it's probably the vaccination rate for children is probably around 95%. And I'm not sure if there are any exemptions that are permitted uh, for children to attend school if they don't have vaccine. They would have to have a medical reason, such as an allergy to a component of the vaccine. But I don't think other uh, exemptions uh, would be, uh, you know, for personal reasons, etc. Uh, permitted. I can't comment on on what's happening right now in terms of people who are not having their kids vaccinated and. Uh, being able to take their kids to public school, there may be individuals who want to homeschool their kids and don't want their kids vaccinated, and that would be a different thing. But the vaccination rate is very high, but certainly uh, the vaccination coverage isn't 100%.
1: And do we need boosters, those of us who had it a long time ago in childhood?
5: Yeah, so if you've had the, the series of vaccines in childhood, which would be at like two, four, six, eighteen 18 months, and then 4 to 6 years Generally speaking, you're protected against polio. And in a low risk environment, that would be adequate. If, like I said, if let's say we have polio um, causing a lot of cases in Canada all of a sudden, then getting a booster dose as an adult would be recommended. Because again, you know, your vaccine um, series in childhood will offer you reasonable protection into adulthood, but giving you a booster just kind of elevates the protection a little bit more whether or not it would make a difference if we had a lot of of cases in Canada is unknown. Again, this is relatively new for us here, but certainly uh, I would recommend that people consider that. If you haven't had the childhood vaccination series, then adults can actually get three vaccines over a span of six months to at least protect them against uh, polio. Uh, Boosters were recommended and still are uh, as part of Uh, as I mentioned, uh, a strategy to prevent infection for people who work in laboratories handling poliovirus or people caring for for people who have polio or people traveling to a country that has a high burden of, of polio. But other than that, I wouldn't say that a booster would be recommended right now, for instance, for Canadians, but certainly the primary vaccine series would be recommended. And if they didn't get that, then adults should get three doses of polio Usually, it's at like an initial dose, and then a second one at one or two months, and then a third one at six months.
1: So, uh, bottom line on this is: this we're just being proactive and and uh, and conservative here with uh, testing the wastewater. Or people should worry about this.
5: Well, I think people should think about this for sure. And if they haven't been vaccinated, they should consider getting vaccinated. I mean, we've learned a lot of lessons from COVID, from monkeypox that. You know, if something happens in one area of the world, it can hit us sooner or later. And polio is, is very contagious. It caused a lot of burden of illness. It you know, causes paralysis of, of limbs in a small percentage of people. But certainly, the effects can be devastating if you happen to be uh, unlucky. And, and, you know, that, that small percentage of people end up getting more severe uh, effects of the disease. It's estimated that the vaccination campaign run by the World Health Organization has prevented 20 million children from having paralysis of a limb, just with all the vaccines that have been administered over the last few decades. So certainly that's many years, and it's obviously the the global population, mostly in impoverished areas, but also as well here in North America, there were a lot of cases of polio before, you know, 1960s. And many people living now don't remember that except for our older generation, but Uh, Certainly, it it is something to take seriously.
1: Okay. Um, Thank you so much for that, Dr. Samir El-Sayed.
5: Thank you, Libby. appreciate it.
1: Uh, Me too. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. We are taking another break, and the latest inflation numbers are out. And apparently things are getting better, but I would like to hear from you. What are you finding when you have to buy your necessary items at the grocery store or elsewhere? Uh, inflation is not as bad as it was in June, but still the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll fee 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be back with more after this you're
0: listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with Libby nimer on zoomer radio
1: welcome back are we winning the battle against inflation it slowed down to 7.6 percent in july 7.6 percent is apparently good news because in June, inflation hit a 40-year high of 8.1%. Now, this marks the first decline in the key inflation rate since June of 2020. So the drop in this case, though, was driven by a decline in gas prices, but the cost of food keeps going up. Prices rose at the fastest pace since August 1981. That was a long time ago, and they are up just shy of 10% year over year. Last month, they were only up just shy of 9.5%. So are we really on the right path out of this? And what should we do? Interest rates have risen a lot and they are still rising. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 For 740, I would like to hear from you about how this is all impacting your family budget. And now I'm joined by Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. Hello there, Moshe. Thanks for joining us. Hello. So uh, we saw a little drop in inflation. Uh, Is this really good news?
6: Uh, Well, I'm going to be the rare economist that sees things optimistically. And I'm going to say, yes, this is good news. I I think that uh, hopefully it's a sign that we've passed the high inflation number and things are going to slowly uh, ease their way back down to 2% in the next 12 to 18 months.
1: To 2%? That's a pretty big drop.
6: Yeah. So let's not say that it's going to happen overnight, right? It's 12 to 18 months. So, you know, if you imagine that the number went from 8.1 to 7.5. If you extrapolate that out, you're still talking about a very long time, right, before it's going to come down to 2%. But 2% is the Bank of Canada's mandate. That's what they're supposed to keep it at. Uh, and they do have a lot of interest rate, increased power if they need it to, to make that happen. So uh, we will see it. Just got to give it time.
1: Well, this happened because of a drop in gas prices. Very welcome. But... The other things in this index went up, and, and mostly I'm looking at food. You, you don't have a choice about buying food. And uh, those prices are galloping, and they're galloping now in the summer when presumably we have we don't have to truck in as much stuff as we usually do.
6: You're right. Uh, food did jump substantially. Rent is another one that's rising pretty quickly, too. Uh, but, you know, food uh, prices take also some time, right? So um, even if you're buying local, it takes some time for, say, the easing of gas prices to show up in transportation costs of getting that food onto the, the local market shelf. So, um, you know, the, the same way that we would have been talking a couple of months ago, about the way that gas prices are rising out of control, and that they had doubled within 12 months. The fact is that at some point, it does turn the corner, and when it turns that corner, uh, things can moderate uh, relatively smoothly and easily back down to the way they used to be. It, we're, we're not going to avoid the occasional blips here and there along the way, but um, you know, I, I am optimistic that this might be the the peak end for for the food prices. too. next month, we might be talking about how they only increased 9% year over year. (laughs) Uh,
1: Do you think that the Bank of Canada sort of nipped this in the bud? Did they move quickly enough or did they fail to see this coming?
6: Um, I'll say that they didn't move quickly enough, but they did see some of this coming. Um, The Bank of Canada had a really difficult uh, decision to make. If they moved to increase interest rates uh, maybe a year ago, the economy wasn't ready for it. And so I guess the, the bad analogy that I could give you is, you know, when you bring a, a sick patient uh, into the emergency room, you don't necessarily do uh, what is long-term best for them. You do what is short-term best for them. You try and stabilize them, get them through the night, make sure they're going to live. Then you start making sure that they're doing the long-term best strategies. Same sort of thing with the economy. When it starts to flatline uh, at the worst of the, the waves of COVID that we saw over the last couple of years, Bank of Canada didn't really have a lot of time or uh, interest, no pun intended, in asking the difficult questions. It was just do what you need to to make sure the economy doesn't die. And now what they're doing is taking corrective action. Uh, The problem is that along the way, they let inflation slip a little bit uh, too far too fast. uh, And now they're having to make up for it.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Hi, thank you so much. Um, We were in the grocery
7: store And the father was shopping with his two daughters, and the children wanted a candy. And the father said, "No, I can't afford that." So by the time he cashed out without the candy, he was short seven cents. And he said to the cashier, "Well, the cashier wouldn't give him the grocery, so he said he will go to the vehicle and look for change." And I said to my husband, "You know what?" We were paid a seven cents, and we would get the girls some candy. And I said to the kids, "When your father said no, it's no, because it's embarrassing and it's hard to go shopping, and you you can't buy what you what you want
1: or need. What you need? Are you finding it uh, difficult to get your groceries done?
7: Well, yeah, we shop what's on sale. We picked up what's on sale and use what's on sale. We don't go and buy ex- something that's not on sale, and we talk up as much as we can, we freeze as much as we can, and that's how we get by.
1: Okay, Sita, thanks for that. I think a lot of people are using those strategies. And interesting, I just saw a release from the NDP, and uh, they are accusing uh, companies of gouging, of raising prices more than they have to because of their own increases that they're facing. Uh, Moshe, do you have any sense of uh, whether that's actually taking place and taking place on a, uh, on a big scale?
6: No, I, I don't think that's happening. I think that's a very smooth political move by the NDP to make that accusation. Um, and, and without anything to back it up, it's an easy accusation to make. But, you know, the reality is that there's enough competition out there in, uh, the grocery, uh, aisles that if, if you even thought for a moment that one grocery store were trying to price gouge, the others would immediately jump upon that and, you know, have their own sort of discounts or sales or undercut or will match our competitors prices and steal that business in a heartbeat. So, uh, I, I'm not going to, to go so far as to say there's price gouging. And if, if somebody wanted to come back and even say then they're colluding, I mean, that's against the law. <laughs> and that's, that, that's one step too far that I think, uh, you know, grocery stores are, are, are not employing as a strategy to, uh, to take advantage of Canadians.
1: I want to talk about wages. So a lot of contracts are coming due. We're in the midst of big inflation. Hourly wages rose 5.2% in July compared with a year ago. And if you look at the kind of asks that are being made uh, and compared to the inflation rate, it looks like, uh, you know, employers are going to have to pay their people more.
6: They are um, you know it's a it's a difficult decision now for employers, and it's a difficult situation for the Canadian economy, because if you do pay workers more, even just to keep pace with inflation, we're seeing these inflation numbers right now that are built on the back of not increasing wages seven, eight percent. If workers now start succeeding in getting those seven, eight percent just to keep their purchasing power steady, that itself becomes inflationary because you're going to have no choice as an employer but to pass some of those higher costs onto your customers. And that hasn't been happening now. So it just means then that if workers try to get what they feel they deserve, rightly or wrongly, um, the Bank of Canada is going to now have to contend with that as a factor in deciding how far to increase interest rates. It could just mean that they're going to have to increase them even further. So it could be a bit of an own goal uh, if workers succeed with this
1: well uh I mean, does that uh you know pour any water on your prediction that that inflation is going to ease because on top of everything there's a labor shortage i mean it's a it's it's a seller's market there
6: it, it is um the thing is that the Bank of Canada has unlimited scope to increase interest rates so I, I'm not going to necessarily change my position there uh, It just means that if the Bank of Canada is saying, all right in the current work place environment, we think we can go with maybe one extra percentage point increase, and that should help us ease our way back down to two. If workers succeed, uh, then the Bank of Canada might say, all right, we now need to increase interest rates by two full percentage points to get to that 2%. They will succeed, and and their timeline of 12 to 18 months seems a, a pretty reasonable one in the absence of any surprises. It's just going to be uh, how uh, accepting are we of that, and how much do we try ourselves to take advantage of the current situation uh, to get what we want as well. Uh, the, the Bank of Canada is merciless and they have no compassion when it comes to bringing inflation to their mandated number. So they'll do what they have to.
1: And uh, do you have any kind of prediction on where we will see those average wage, wage takes going? I think that wage hikes
6: probably have a little bit further to go in terms of increasing because, like you said, there are contracts that come due usually you know, once every year, once every couple of years, and we haven't seen inflation increase for the last 12 months. So, uh, you know, there, there's a, still a good portion of the Canadian workforce that has yet to get in their uh, wage demand requests, but I think that a lot of that's going to work its way out of the economy in the next six months, especially if those higher interest rates, when they start to bite, slow down the economy, and workers realize – You can ask for more money, but you could also be jeopardizing your job if there's a slowdown coming.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's one of those anomalies, though. We keep being told there's a slowdown coming, but there's still a labor shortage.
6: Yeah, uh, the the labor shortage itself is is a little bit of a a, a weird idea, too, right? We do have employment numbers at high uh, levels, higher than pre-COVID. Unemployment is near record lows. Uh, but the fact is that the the nature of the jobs has changed substantially, right? Where you have people that are working on part-time contracts as opposed to full-time jobs, uh, or where you have people that even have full-time jobs but not in the industries that they want, and, you know, the great resignation that's kind of uh, triggering behind that, uh, there is, you're right, it's a seller's market. But at some point then, uh, you're going to have employers come back on workers and say, listen, this is the reality uh, and we're going to just start closing rather than trying to deal with that labor shortage. We'll eliminate the shortage by stop asking for more workers uh, and just changing the ways that we operate.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Anything you want to leave us with on this?
6: Uh, I have a feeling we'll talk again because uh, Bank of Canada is coming up in a couple of weeks, and so they're going to have an interesting decision about what to do with interest rates, and then the inflation numbers will come out shortly after that, so uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon.
1: <laughs> okay. Thank you for that, Moshe Lander
6: anytime.
1: Okay, Uh, that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.